0: Up
1: next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation.
3: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde here on Reality Check Radio. And we've got a lovely morning coming up with you. First up is Dr. Bryce Wilkinson from New Zealand Initiative. We're going to be talking, uh, I didn't know this, but about the stunning success of Ireland, its economic performance over these past decades. Has been phenomenal, and Bryce has been looking at the performance of Ireland versus New Zealand. It just says the Rugby World Cup; they'd be the winners by a long margin. And also, we discuss we'll be discussing regulation and its baleful effects on our prosperity and our lives. And also, we've got the wonderful Sarah Beasley. She has been doing great work as a community uh, citizen, uh, approaching her local government and keeping them. On their toes. And on the way, she's been teaching them mirror a thing or two. You're going to love Sarah. Stay tuned. You're on Reality Check Radio. Real talk with Rodney Hyde.
0: Thanks for tuning
1: in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me at inbox at Wow. We've got a lovely, lovely listener, long-time listener, who emailed in, and she's had an interaction with her local council. She's going to share that interaction with us. But also, not only is she a great listener to the RCR, she is also one of the moderation moderators of Health New Zealand, the Linda Wharton Facebook page. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that because... What Linda did and the moderators did to bring us together and to provide somewhere for those who were injured or had family members who died from the jab was truly amazing. And I could never forgive the authorities nor Facebook for shutting them down. That lifeline was shut down. For political reasons, because it was counter the narrative. Not that it wasn't telling the truth; it was telling the truth, and that became the problem. So, good morning and welcome, Sarah.
2: Good morning, Rodney. It's lovely to um, have a chance to talk to you.
1: Well, can I thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of all listeners, because we all followed that, followed you that Facebook page, and we followed you on telegram and then Twitter and it was amazing group and the support that you and the other moderators and the amazing Linda Wharton gave was second to none.
2: Thank you yeah it was a, a really um, amazing very surreal time to be honest and um, you know the the day that our Facebook page got shut down, um it just really gobsmacked us all. We, we knew that it was coming, and we knew that it had been coming for quite some time. In fact, Linda would often go, well, we're still here today. No. <laughs> um, I, I'm
1: shocked at my naivety. Mm. You know what I mean? I just would never have imagined that thinking, breathing people could do that to a group. It just never occurred to me. And then I remember interviewing Linda when I was on another radio station, and she said, oh, you know, you can't mention the V word.
3: Mm. And I
1: said, what? And she's sort of telling me they have these algorithms that would expunge it if it went up on Mm. YouTube. I thought she was barking mad. And she was 100% right. I never imagined that there'd be these algorithms patrolling the Internet and dropping you out because you said (laughs) vaccine. I'm just such a little baby, you know. I just, I feel embarrassed at my innocence. Mm. And I thought I was a cynical, old, hard-bitten person. But we'll get to that because I want to explore. You've, quite amazing, you've had this interaction with your local council, and I want you to walk us through Mm -hmm. it, please. And then we'll get on to your moderation if we have time. So take us through your experience with the local council.
2: (laughs) Okay. So, um, so like um, many people out there, you know, I'd always been, um, you know, pretty, a pretty trusting sort of person. And, um, and when COVID hit, um, you know, we, we did the same thing as a lot of the rest of New Zealand was doing, you know, in terms of accepting, you know, what we were being told and, you know, following the the guidelines. Um, however, the more that that unfolded, um, the more my husband and I sort of started to sort of think, well, actually, something doesn't quite stack up here. And we started to form um, relationships with other people locally who actually had a similar sort of questioning way of being, I suppose. And we ended up with a very small, little local group of people in our um, in our town in Solway. And um, <clears throat> we supported each other through COVID and um, you know, what we were wanting to do was to try and find ways of actively being, um, you know, creating ways of being more resilient as our small community. And, um, and as we moved through the process, we sort of got to a point where, um, you know, the COVID thing wasn't really quite so valid, but then Cyclone Gabriel hit and we started to sort of ask questions about, well, how resilient is our local community? What is our council doing to mm. ensure resilience? And, um, and we had a, a meeting where we started to sort of put together some ideas about what we would ask our local council um, <clears throat> with the aim of going to them and finding out what they were already doing, what they already knew and what they were planning to do rather than us making assumptions. Mm. And um, and so and and I'd have to say our council, um, the new mayor, Gary Caffill, set up um, a weekly drop-in session as part of his um, mayoralty. And that allows anybody off the street to go in and talk to him once a week. There's two hours set aside, and he often has another councillor with him. And um the aim is to give people an opportunity to just drop in and talk to him about their concerns and whatever's going on or what you know, so on.
1: Can I just interrupt you there, Sarah? Yeah,
2: sure. Um, what was his name again? Gary Cafel.
1: How do you spell Caffell? C-Caffell? Uh
2: C-A-F-F C-A-F-F-E-L-L.
1: Okay, Caffell. And was he a counsellor before he was mayor or is he fresh to the job?
2: Yeah so he would he had been involved in council for a, quite some time okay. prior to being mayor he'd been a okay. councillor mm.
1: okay okay so you got the drop in centre, carry on
2: so um so we thought great you know um there were a number of things that came up you know as as concerns for people um you know things about flood mitigation and um you know et cetera et cetera and um you know the climate change stuff and <clears throat> um 15-minute cities was another thing that got raised and, you know, a few other bits and bobs. So we decided that we needed to just pick one item to begin with and go in and have a talk. And there were three out of our original group who went to the first um, drop-in session. And we decided that we would start off by asking them, um, you know, what they were, uh, you know, how aware they were around the 15-minute city thing and what that meant. Um, I won't go into that at this point, although um, I have been invited by Car- Gary since to go in and do a presentation to council based oh, on three sessions that we actually had um, discussing this. And um, But basically um, what happened as a result of the, um, the the four meetings that we've had to date was that we, we built up some level of relationship and trust and um, in the conversation. And I think that's what led to me being invited to go and actually talk to the council at large. And I've been given 20 minutes on the 25th of October to do that, which I'll be doing with a PowerPoint. Um, But really what the aim was, was to go in and, um, you know, because I think over the last three years, a lot of people have gone through a place of, you know, where their trust in the decision makers um, in our society has been badly shaken. And um, and we, it was really to look at how do we rebuild um, some of the conversation that needs to be had? How do we get it so that, you know, they don't make assumptions about what people in their community want and we don't make assumptions about what we think they're doing? Mm-hmm. And um, one of the comments that Gary made to me At one of the meetings, was he said, you know, we turned up and he said, oh look, I'm, I'm really happy to see you guys. You guys are so so much more entertaining, he said, than the usual sort of gripes and mumbles that I get. Um, You know, you always got something interesting to discuss, and um, and you know, it wasn't that he was rubbishing what other people had to say or anything like that, because he, you know, he's obviously there because he does want people to have a voice, but he was also interested to look at the bigger topics and the bigger Mm. picture Mm. um, outside of just, you know, the small day-to-day things. And um, so the next thing that happened after that was um, there was a a post that had been going around the internet and it had been put up by somebody um, who had – sort of jumped on um you know the the concept that ratepayers were being put up as collateral by their local council so that they could borrow money from overseas banks and that this was opening ratepayers up to a high risk because if the loans were defaulted then those people who, you know um were lending the money could come in and basically take, you know, the assets, um the asset base of the ratepayers was in effect mm-hmm. what they were saying. There was a lot of quite inflammatory language I felt in that post. Um, but it was causing enough concern where I, I said to our little group, look, how about we just go and talk to the council about this and we find out how much truth is in this rather than, you know, allowing it to ping pong around on the internet and being part of the ping ponging, how about we go and actually talk to them and find out what the truth of the situation is and how much, you know, validity there is in this so we went and had a conversation with Gary, and, and he was really upfront with us. He actually said, look, I can't answer your questions, but you need to talk to the financial manager of the Masterton District Council, um, David Paris. And um, so we, we ended up being able to see David Paris that day. And I would have to say it was really, really worthwhile. He was great. He actually s- sat down with us. He gave us about half an hour of his time Um, May
1: I again just interrupt, Sarah? I'm talking hmm. to Sarah Bisley on Real Talk uh, with Rodney Hyde on Really Check Radio. Um, I can imagine them doing this, Sarah, because you've got a wonderful manner with you, (laughs) and you uh, you approach it not as um, someone coming in. Because oftentimes, I know I do this when I'm interacting with authority. By the time I get to the meeting, I'm in high dudgeon and I'm sort of not calm. And I can imagine you approaching it um, very calmly and very politely, which makes such a difference. So good for you. So carry on. You met the finance guy.
2: Thank you. Yeah, so we we went in and um, had a list of questions. And, you know, um, we asked things like, you know, are the rate payers being used as a collateral, you know, against the loans? And who are the loans being, you know, who are they, uh, who is the loan provider? and Et cetera, et cetera, And cetera. Um, and, you know, what was quite interesting was there was some truth in yes, indeed. what had been said, and that was that the, um, the ratepayers are indeed, you know, put up as collateral, just in the same way as taxpayers are put up as collateral for government loans. It's very much the same process mm-hmm. um, because that's their means of being able to guarantee that they can pay back the debt. Um, but what was, um, not correct was the fact that, um, our local councils don't borrow from overseas banks. They actually borrow through something which is called the local government funding authority. And the local government funding authority actually acts a little bit like the reserve bank in that it creates bonds. And then it puts those bonds out for sale, um, to investors. And um, those investors come in, they buy the bonds. um, They know that there is risk attached to them. Um, I was trying to find out whether all of the um, bonds were secured or unsecured. um, And the only thing I could find out was that the last lot that were put up in April were actually unsecured bonds, which means that the people who are buying the bonds accept that there is risk. And if there is a default, then they've got no comeback, basically um, you know, to come and take assets or anything along that sort of line. Um so they create these bonds. Um what was also interesting was that the shareholders of the LGFA are actually all New Zealand councils and governments. So there's 80% shareholders in the councils and 20% shareholders in local governments. So the LGFA itself is actually a completely New Zealand-owned entity. Um and that the investors that are buying the bombs are 70% New Zealand investors. Um, and, and they include things like, um, you know, our KiwiSaver investors and so on and 30% are international investors. So the actual exposure to overseas funding is actually quite low. Mm. So, so that was interesting. Um, because I felt, you know, that, it means that there is actually a bit of comfort in knowing that what we are dealing with, even even if our can- councils do borrow money, and and they still need to keep an eye on how much they're borrowing, obviously, but at least they're borrowing in-house, so to speak, rather than you know becoming beholden to su- a, a much bigger entity overseas that we have no control over the behaviour of. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that um, that we found as a result. Um, of this, well, well, one of the questions that we put through to um, David Paris was, well, what happens if we get a situation where people can't afford to pay their rates and they they default, and what would happen if you had a high level of default? Um, and he said that there was a safety mechanism built into the way LGFA is, is run, and that basically what they have is um, a situation where if a, a council does default, um, then there are other councils. There is a set number of councils within the, the, the setup or the framework that act as guarantors, and that means that if you get a council that does fail, then the other guarantor councils step in and they actually pick up the um, debt repayments until that council perhaps can get on its feet again, or you know whatever some other arrangement is made. So sorry, were you did you want to ask oh, I was something? gonna
1: say you were gonna answer did you come away then somewhat reassured?
2: Well, it was reassuring um in that you know a lot of the stuff that had been said was basically that we've got no control, it's all overseas owned, da-da-da-da-da. And if it all turns to custard, we're going to get people coming and taking New Zealand land and New Zealand property and you know, whatever. And we've got no control over it, so it was actually quite a scaremongering type yes. of.
1: I'm quite pleased post. to hear all this, Sarah, mm. because I feel this is a bit of a candid camera moment, because I'm responsible for setting that funding agency
2: up. Right, huh, so. interesting.
1: <laughs> so I was a bit scared I was going to hear, and I'm up for it. How disastrous it is, or 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 was. So um, I was minister of local government from 2008 to 2011 right and um, I um, was <laughs> responsible for that setting up that funding agency so um and it's very it's very easy it shows you how very easy it is to scare people on both sides government can scare us and then we get distrustful of government and then someone can say something and they're not wrong, but it's the way they word it. Um, yeah. I can tell you the history of it. It came, it, local councils had been talking about it for some time. And you may recall that back in 2008, John Key came to be prime minister and the economy was faltering. And there's a lot of concern about the future. And as new governments want to do, they want to show that they're very agreeable and, I wasn't a particular fan, but John Key set up, a—I think it was called a job summit or something in 2009. And everyone turned up with ideas for um, how to get the economy back on track. And the only two ideas that I remember was one was the bike trail from New Zealand to the other was going to be this big economic boost. And the other was local council saying, that they were struggling um, with raising money for infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And the problem being that you might be a small council and, I don't know, you want to build something, a water reticulation works, and you had to raise the money. And if you're a small council, you don't have a sophisticated uh, treasury body and also investors looking at you think a potter key council you know it sounds a bit dodge never heard of it (laughs) and they don't particularly want to invest their money so it was worked out and the work had been done before i got to it that if you set up a separate funding agency with all the local councils as constituent members They would be able to raise the money without actually having to have, I don't know, I forget how many councils there are now, but say there are 50, 80, um, having 50 to 80 treasury departments. They could just have one big one. And also their risk would be lessened, and therefore they would have to pay less interest.
3: Mm.
1: So that was the logic of it. Um, And, of course, the funding agency has an incentive to keep an eye on councils that they're not getting their debt too out of whack. <laughs> so that's the history of it. And um, I have to say, someone was going, um, was very upset about it on social media, one of my friends. And I thought, oh, that sounds familiar. I think that was me. And I had to look up and I had to own up that I was the one responsible um, for this funding agency. So I was with some trepidation that I was coming on to hear what you had discovered because I thought if if it's a complete disaster, I'll have to Mm -hmm. own up. So uh, there you go. And it's also a terrible, frightening thing to realise that government and councils, when they borrow money, they do get it cheap. But they get it cheap because they have the power to tax. And they're not like a business or you and I where whether I'm lending you money, I look at you and I think, Oh, I hope she's good for it. Or, you know, that business that I'm lending to might fall over. So there's a big risk. But when they look to invest in a government or a local council, they say, well, there's no risk because they can just keep putting taxes up and taxes up and taxes up. And people will keep paying and paying because they don't have a choice if they don't pay. If you're a ratepayer and you don't pay, ultimately you can be sold up. Your property can be taken and sold, and what you owe in rates deducted, and you get the rest. And of course, if you're a if you're in New Zealand and not paying your income tax, your GST, you can go to jail. And so the power to tax, there's a judge in America who described it as the power to destroy. Mm. Because it's Money and assets taken off you compulsorily, and so the people that are scaring us about this awesome power—they're not wrong. Uh, while your name and your property isn't written um, in the debt instrument, you are actually, uh, by virtue of owning up, being a ratepayer or being a citizen of New Zealand, you are ultimately liable for all the debt that your council and your government take on your behalf, which is terribly frightening. Mm. Um, And, of course, that's where New Zealand got to in 1984. We got so indebted that we were in danger of losing control of our own economy because the International Monetary Fund, if a country gets it in a really bad way, the International Monetary Fund will actually march in Mm. and start saying, here's what you have to do. Mm. and um, obviously it's like if you're a citizen, if you owe a lot of money, um, you can lose control of your life, and a Mm. government or a council Mm. can lose control of its ability to make decisions because Mm. it owes such a lot of money. So good on you. Mm. I'm very proud of the mayor and the mayor allowing you and the finance officer being so willing and able to talk to you?
2: Yeah, well, it was um, it was really good. And, you know, I think, you know, like in the, what I would term as the sort of freedom communities, you know, mm. there has become a very high level of distrust, um, you know, and what it has done is it has actually stopped, I think, a lot of conversations from being had. Mm. Um, you know, our conversation actually continued on, you know, um, because, you know, we we established that um, the LGFA actually, I think, has been set up very well and it has got a safety net within it, which is the guarantor council system. Um, But, you know, all the issues that you've just raised about, you know, the potential risk for both taxpayers and ratepayers is actually very real if you have government that, you know, or a local body that chooses to act, you know, in a...
1: Imprudent way.
2: um, Imprudent way, exactly. And so, you know, we we sort of did push that point a little bit with um, David Paris um, because we said to him, you know, like, if you did get a situation where... You know, it's, sure, you know, that safety mechanism within the LGFA works if you've got one council that's defaulting and the other councils can kind of pick up the slack. But what happens if you get a situation that hits a country and you suddenly get 40% of ratepayers can't meet their rates throughout the entire country? What happens then? And, um, and he basically, um, you know, was saying, well, in in that situation, yes, that would be where councils would go into default, Um, you know, and obviously it would lead to a a massive level of instability, Mm. whether the government would then try and step in, but then, you know, the government would just be end up taking up more debt and you would end up with the situation snowballing anyway. So, um, but what I think was really good was we actually, got David thinking about, because I think that he had gone into that conversation, and up to the point where we raised the thing about, well, what happens if 40% of ratepayers, say, for example, defaulted through New Zealand? I don't think he'd, he'd possibly sort of ever given that much thought because the LGFA was set up the way it was. To him, it was a very safe mechanism, and that was all good. And he did say that, you know, on the whole, um, you know, they do try to keep the level of borrowing down and, you know, act responsibly. I mean, although there are a lot of ratepayers, myself included, who would dispute that, you know, our money is always being used in the best way. Um, but it was interesting when we raised that with him because it was sort of almost like, ah, oh, okay, and getting him to look outside of that and, and mm. think that much, much bigger picture. And so the end of the, um, at the end of the, talk with David, I ended up writing an email to Gary Cafell to tell him what the outcome of that conversation was, because I felt it was really important for Gary to become educated as well. It wasn't enough to just have that conversation with David Paris. I wanted Gary to become aware, because he clearly didn't know the answers to a lot of the questions that we were asking. So we thought, well, it's a great opportunity to educate our mayor. And I and I asked for my email to be passed on to all of the councillors so that they became aware of it. And we basically ended up, you know, saying that this just really reiterates the responsibility of councils to ensure that they are responsible borrowers and that really what we should be doing is looking to spend money only where services really need to have borrowing applied. Mm. Um and we also asked David, um, you know, was there an opportunity where the council could look at perhaps looking at building a bit of a surplus, like looking to pay off debt um, rather than constantly being in the borrowing cycle? And his initial response was really interesting because he said, oh, you know, people would jump up and down if we did that because they'd see that we had all this money and, you know, we weren't doing this and we weren't doing that with it. And I and, and we basically said to him, um, well, actually a lot of that is about being being in good communication with your local community. If you explain to them why you're looking at your priority being to pay off more debt, and we're not going to have so many of the nice-to-haves or the you know, vanity project type stuff, but we're going to stick to our core infrastructure requirements and we're going to actually look at paying off debt I'm sure that a lot of people would be on board with that if they mm. understood the reason why you were doing it. So, um, so we we sort of just put that into the conversation, and um, and we will catch up with Gary, you know, a little bit further down the line. Well, um, about all of it.
1: It's great. I think Gary is amazing because he's mm. prepared to admit what he doesn't know. Yeah, he's prepared to admit. Civil sur- uh, citizens into the civil service to ask their questions mm. I'm not, most mayors wouldn't let their councillors talk to the financial officer outside of a council meeting mm. Mm. and then um, he's open to you saying well here's what we find out and now he's invited you in you're very very lucky he sounds a marvellous politician because um, I think we as politicians uh, we don't know What's going on underneath us, and you you' be a beer mayor, or in my case a minister, and you inherit this huge bureaucracy with its own agenda, oftentimes you know following the UN agenda because that's what we've signed up to, and you're not aware of the machinery under you, and your spell um, as minister or mayor is relatively short um, when the bureaucracy, it's their entire career. And it's sort of a self-perpetuating uh, monster, which has got terrifically big difficulty that you face as a mayor or a politician is there's no votes in getting debt down, but there's a lot of votes in throwing money at people. Mm. And they don't really, my, my horror, my horror was in 2005 and I was campaigning in Epsom, which included Remuera, which is a very well-off part of Auckland, and I was walking down the streets, and these well-off people told me they were voting for Helen Clark, the dads, because she was going to wipe the debt off their kids who were getting their law degrees. And I looked at that, and obviously they're voters, so I couldn't abuse them. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But you're looking at them, and you're thinking, here you are with a house, two flash cars, kids at university going off to be lawyers, and you're voting to remove debt that your adult child has willingly entered into with the government of New Zealand And you're going to vote for Helen Clark who's going to shift that debt onto kids not yet born Mm -hmm. who will never get to go to university Mm -hmm. and will be working their entire lives and lucky to own a house. Mm -hmm. But it worked, got her elected. Mm -hmm. And it's tough because I tried to explain that in a sentence, but he didn't care because he was voting selfishly Mm. so he would be able to have what a holiday that year extra or something or his daughter would you know go skiing I just find that so terrible and here's Helen Clark she doesn't care that that debt is going to be pushed onto all New Zealand Mm. um, into the future all she cared about and I'm not picking on her all politicians are the same They'll spend money, your money and your children's money and yet unborn children's money, to win an election. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. there's no protection to us from that. And when yeah. they borrow that money, they in debt every one of us. So exactly as that skew mm-hmm. email said. You know, they they mortgage you. Mm. and your ability to produce mm. an income. It's a stack of cards too, if you think about it. This is what used to keep me awake at night. When I became local government minister, I was sort of shocked at how councils were so financially strapped and they couldn't afford to do their basic infrastructure, you know, keep water safe, keep the sewage in the pipes, not running in the waterways, all the basic things you think about a council doing. They could do the put the statue out. you know, run a pride festival, but in terms of doing that basic infrastructure, um, they were struggling. And then you think, well, their their base and their rates are coming in on property values. And we can readily imagine, can't we, property values falling quite dramatically in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, the ability of councils to... Maintain their spending and pay off their debt is severely curtailed without actually a massive increase in rates. But their ratepayers are struggling because they've just lost a whole lot of value in their property. Mm. So it could very, very quickly turn south.
2: Mm. Yeah. And it was interesting because David Paris did acknowledge, you know, that there was that possibility. Mm. And, you know, that was one of the things that, um, you know, we're, you know, we basically, um, in the email that I sent Gary said to him, you know, that given the global economic situation and the, um, you know, all of the um, economic indicators that are out there, it is even more important that councils do, you know, act responsibly in terms of what they're investing money in. And, um, you know, and they do have... Um, you know, a responsibility to use money wisely as far as their local communities go. And it's interesting because, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the whole globalism thing, um, you know, and, I mean, that's a huge rabbit hole that, you know, lots of people have gone down, um, you know, and I'm certainly not unaware of, you know, a lot of the implications of that and how it all hangs together. Um, I've come to a very simple I suppose, a a simple way of being able to deal with that because I think it's very easy to feel very powerless very quickly. And, you know, feeling powerless just makes people feel angry and it often makes them less effective at what they can do. And uh, my dad has a very great saying. He says, focus on what you can control, not on what you can't, because it's a waste of time otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, And I got to the point where I just thought, well, you know, if we, all of us got involved in shoring up our local communities. And the in, you know the way that I've termed this um, when we've spoken with Gary is wanting to preserve the integrity of our local communities. Mm. So, you know, how do we do that? And that comes about by more of us getting involved at this level, you know, talking to our counsellors, talking to the decision makers, but, you know, going in with that attitude of, not assuming that they're doing it all wrong, because the, the, the best way to get someone's back up and shut down the conversation is to have them think that, you know, you think they're doing it all wrong. It's always better to go in with the um, aim of asking questions and then gently sort of coming around and yes. and looking at it as, well, that, you know, have you thought about it from this perspective or, you know, whatever? Um And I think that's really what we've been doing with Gary and and. There have been two other councillors that have been in two of the meetings. Um, and I think it's a, con- a really constructive way of working. And the, the biggest antidote to globalism is localism. Mm. So, you know, if every single one of us who has the time and the energy and the inclination was to start engaging with our local decision-making people at that level then I think we would they would find it a lot more difficult to actually push centralisation and all of that side of it. And,
1: of course, not so long ago, literally that was how it was done. Mm. Admittedly, council's functions were much less than what they are now. We didn't put the demands upon them that we do now. But, you know, it was your neighbour that was the mayor or the mm. councillor, and, you know, they'd volunteer, and it was like a community or a club. But now they've become monsters. Uh, when I, when I um, set up Auckland Council out of, what was it, eight local councils and one regional council, we counted up that the councils had 109 functions given to them by statute. Right. So they had 109 things they had to do. Well, no organisation can do 109 things, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And that was before they got to do what they thought they should do. Um, and we came across truly horrific things. <laughs> the councils couldn't tell us um, how many people they employed in a swimming pool. They didn't know. Right. And we found halfway through the process that there was an entire office that no one knew about or told us about that was just missing on the books. And so, you know, it's a very human organisation, and you're you're absolutely right. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've been sitting in my MP's office, because MPs run a similar open-door policy, and it would always be a man, and they'd walk into your office and they'd sit down, and they'd proceed to tell you everything you were doing wrong. (laughs) And what you didn't understand and how it should be done. One of them was Colin Craig, actually. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, this is beginning to pee me off, right? Because (laughs) like, I'm not stupid, and I'm working every hour that God gives me. I'm trying at my utmost to do my best, and here's someone literally walked off the street who thinks they know everything. And uh, I know I don't know everything, but don't just come in and harangue me, it just gets me Mm -hmm. upset. And um, so the approach that you're taking is so wonderful. Now, I've got a question for you. Have you any interest yourself in standing for council? Or I don't know, in your area, do they have community boards?
2: Yeah, they do. And it's interesting because um, I've had a couple of people who said to me, you know, um, that I should stand for council and what have you. I think at the moment I've come to the conclusion that I'm in a better position to be mm. able to do things by not being in that place because I think as soon as you go into being a counsellor, there are certain rules that you have to abide by or lines that you ha- – there's a perception that you have to toe. Mm. Um, whereas coming at it from this perspective, um, I think there it, it, it's really an opportunity to open up a conversation in a completely different way and, um, and you know, I, I think it's also, um, yeah, I, I think there's more potential for more education to happen as a result. And how,
1: if I may say so, you're very cool, you're very calm, and you're very analytical, right, <laughs> which is not common. Is that through your training or work experience or is that just you?
2: Um, I don't know, but I know in my school reports, my parents always, you know, they were like the every, like, well, a lot of the school reports have come through with Sarah is quietly confident and they'd be like, oh, well, that doesn't sound very exciting, but, you know, (laughs) I suppose it's good.
1: (laughs) But you're not a trained accountant or economist? No,
2: no, no. I'm actually a, um, a functional medicine practitioner and medical herbalist. Oh, um, wow! and I'm trained in, in, uh, like I, I treat people as complete systems. So I suppose I'm a very systems based person. Mm. I've always, uh, like, I, I don't like what I call fudge factor. So I've never been a very good person at, um, sort of just accepting something on face value. I want to know why it works the way it does and what, what it's connected to. And that if I was to do X, what effect would that have further down the line? You know, so that's. Kind of like, I guess, how my brain is organised. Um, and,
1: and explain to me functional medicine.
2: So functional medicine is literally um, looking at the functional, um, the function of the body, um, from a medicine perspective, natural medicine perspective. So mm. you literally are looking at a person as a complete system. You're looking at where the things are that are not working well and why that might be. And um, looking at um, how you get to the root of the the cause, you know, of the problem for the person that you're working with. Um, you you must
1: look. I think they call what we go and see GP for. Is that called allopathic medicine? Is that the phrase? No,
2: no. Allopathic is your standard GP model. So yes. I'm I'm not a. No, no,
1: not, no. I know that the opposite to you is allopathic. Yeah.
2: You must look at that. And think,
1: well, it's good if you have a broken leg. Um, It's good if you're in pain and you need some pain relief, like a headache. Mm. But there's a certain aspect to it which feels irremediably broken. Mm. And my mother, God bless her, um, died last year at 94. And I used to take her in to see the doctor. And, like, the doctors were very nice, but it was sort of horrific because the bloody pills they're giving them.
3: Mm.
1: And, like, my mum knew that she was soon to die,
3: Mm.
1: but it's like this, they can fix you and keep you running forever, just take more pills. And she was having all these complex array of side effects and when you'd question the doctor they didn't know, it was all very, this is a new pill, it was all very experimental mm-hmm. and yet if my mother went to the doctor and didn't get pills, she didn't think it was worthwhile to go and see him in a way you know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you
1: get 15 minutes and um she went to a lovely chiropractor who was Absolutely superb for her, which I guess is a sort of you know functional medicine. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, it's not working looking at the parts and sending you off to a specialist at every opportunity, and it's not working. You go and see the doctor and get a prescription and walk out. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and <laughs> It's sort of been a victim of its own success in its early years.
2: Yeah, well, I you, think the you thing… You
1: wouldn't dismiss… I guess you wouldn't dismiss the… You know, you don't dismiss it, mm-hmm. but there's a limit to it.
2: Yeah, I my approach is that you really want to use the best of all the tools that are in the toolbox. Yes. And there is a time when <clears throat> something like steroids or antibiotics or whatever, you know, they can be life-saving. Mm-hmm. There's no two ways about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really want to be looking at, well, why did the person go into that place in the first place? And what can we do to actually correct the real reason as to why that happened? Mm. And then, you know, look at how do we reinforce the resilience of the entire body system? Mm. Um, and you know, that's the difference. So I'm, I'm certainly not against allopathic medicine, but I, I believe that it's not the answer to a lot of what is going on. It's a good ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And there are some things that can buy time um, or, you know, if you've got somebody, for example, who's had a thyroid gland removed, you will never have a person who can make their own thyroid hormone, so they have to be on medication for that.
1: Yes.
2: But what you can do is you can look at, well, what, what, was the, what are the other things that are going on with that person um, and how do we get their body system so that it's using the medication more effectively, reducing the side effects How do we get them into a situation where they don't end up with further damage happening through things that have not been addressed? Um, You know, using that thyroid removal as as an extreme example. A lot of the people I work with, I do an enormous amount of work with people who've got allergies and gut issues um, and hormonal issues. Those would be the three things that I most commonly deal with. Um, But um,
1: Presumably, because there's been a... Rapid increase in all of that. Presumably a lot of it is a more toxic environment um, or different nutrition, not such a healthy nutrition that we used to have because all this is on the rise. and You see it with young children, don't you? Mm,
2: mm, Which yeah,
1: never used to be a thing. Yeah. And then you just see that we were growing up and I, it was... Sunshine, fresh air, exercise, and good food, healthy Mm. food, grown Mm. in the garden and cooked by mum. And now you look at a person's diet, and these kids can have horrific diets. Mm. People can can have horrific diets.
2: And you can look at the fact that there are a whole lot of other things that have changed over that same time frame. You know, the the level of stress, the exposure to you know electromagnetic um, yes. You know, radiation Yes. um you staring,
1: know staring at your phone
2: oh absolutely and and there are all sorts of things you know um and it will never be just one thing that's created no. a health outcome there will be multiple things that come together that affect that individual's health and well-being um you know how did, did you get into so this important.
1: how did you get into this
2: field um, through my own health issues, actually, I was when I was in my early 30s, I was um, having some very substantial problems, and um, and I, I similar to your mum, I actually ended up going to a chiropractor, and he took one look at me and said, "Well, a young woman of your age shouldn't be having all these problems." So he had a more holistic view, and he actually gave me some advice, which I followed. And this was after about four years of going through the medical system and, and in the end being told, you know, that I had to stay on medication basically because that was the only way of controlling what was going on. And I, I was thinking, well, there's got to be a better solution than that. And, um, and I followed his advice and that's what got me started because I started to realize there was another way of working, which was completely different and it was effective. And, um, and so then I, looked at retraining and and as these things often do Rodney when when you start to open yourself up to different opportunities different ways of seeing things um the doors just suddenly started to open I had people talking to me suddenly about herbal medicine I'd never been you know I'd never been on my radar but then I I have a a strong intuitive aspect where you know and and I am um You know, a a Christian and I I basically I just said to God look if you're trying to show me something then show me what it is and and open the doors and and I'll walk there and um and so as I say I had all of these people that were suddenly talking to me about you know herbal medicine and I stuck a very tentative toe into the water by going and doing a weekend course for a year um and within three weekends of doing that, I just knew that was where I was meant to be going. I already had a, a love of plants, and I I thought, what, what are my real passions? And they were plants, and they were making a difference to the quality of other people's lives. And I thought, well, how on earth do I bring those two things together? And that was when I started to get people talking to me about herbal medicine, and that's where I started. So I, I trained as a medical herbalist in the end. And um, and then I went on this, what has been a lifelong journey and and will continue, I suspect, until the day I die, of always learning more about how I can work in an even more holistic way for the people that, that work with me.
1: Well, um, I can see you and sadly listeners can't. And I have to say, you're a picture of radiant health. Um, you look <laughs> extraordinarily, you. You, you actually radiate goodness, and health. We have Sarah Beasley, 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 Sarah Beasley. I do apologise, Sarah Beasley on the line. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's Really Check Radio. Sarah's a great listener to the show, to Really Check Radio. She has to be thanked from all our hearts for being a moderator for Linda Wharton on Health New Zealand Forum on Facebook which was such a lifeline to so many Kiwis, including me. And we won't go and talk too long about it being taken down, but how disgusting and evil was that? And she's been involved at a local level approaching the council, and you can tell by her manner how wonderful she would be at it and what a success she's having at it from the outside just going along and listening and talking and um, not getting hit up, which is something I have to learn. I'd love to have her back to discuss functional medicine. I'd love to have her back to discuss um, the experience of being the moderator on Health New Zealand, the forum. And I'd love to have her back to discuss Christ because she touches every base. And I'm just enjoying chatting to her, because how often these days do we find ourselves talking to people and it's all me, 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 and boring stuff, you know? And we've just met Sarah, and we've had this wonderful exploration of your experience in your life, Sarah.
2: Well, thank you, Rodney. And, um, you know, I I just am so grateful for Reality Check Radio and all of the work that it's doing because mm. it's provided a much, much needed, um, you know, voice. And I think you've just hit on it beautifully, that whole exploring of a conversation mm. um, because that's so badly needed. You know, so many people have become, you know, quite cynical. And when you become cynical, you can't, the conversation is no longer there. It's fine to be sceptical, but to come at it from a, you know, to keep that conversation open, to keep it moving forwards and, you know, not make assumptions about what another person thinks or where they're coming from is so vital. Have you always been a Christian? Um, I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, I had a period in my time where I kind of um, disappeared out. I got very disillusioned with the church, or what I would term now as organised religion, and uh, and I actually came back to it um, later on Re- once I'd realised that organised religion was not actually um, about the relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And, uh you know and and I remember my mother as a, a child she was never a particularly overtly religious person it was my grandparents actually who gave me more of that sort of Christian upbringing if you like but my my mum used to I mean her father said to her you can worship God in your own backyard and God is way bigger than the church and um and you know that is really the point where I got to in the end I thought well if if I'm disillusioned with some of what I see in the organized religion aspect of it, then it's actually more about my relationship with the Lord God Almighty and what that looks like. That's the important piece of the puzzle. And um and so that's why I came does to the does,
1: does he care about us as individuals?
2: Um I believe I believe that he does. Yeah. I, that's certainly my experience of it.
1: Great, good, because I sometimes wonder if, because I'm recently a Christian, Mm. and I've never felt, I used to go to Sunday school until I was, I think I was about seven, and I resolved when I was seven that I was an atheist, which is extraordinary. I don't know how this happened. and um, But this past little while has made me a believer, deeply a believer, Mm. and I'm not an expert. I haven't read a lot, Um, but I've seen evil now, Mm. and if there can be evil, there has to be able to be good. Mm. And I've reflected on the evil that I see, and I realize it's against the Bible. And I've seen good Christian people, and I've admired them, and I want to be like them and emulate them. And I realize it's their belief that makes them such good people. And so I happily say now I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I don't, um, I'm no expert, but I'm a believer. And it has, I love, I love, I started, we started saying grace mm. and I've prayed out loud and I simply do it to count my blessings Mm. and when I have friends or family in trouble I'll say I'll pray for you and it's wonderful because what do you say otherwise what can you do Mm. but you can pray for them and I find praying for them a very good feeling and I find grace at night with my family a very good feeling because you just count your blessings and you become a better person and you feel as though there's a world bigger than your world, and just me, 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 and what makes me happy, it just can't work. But I have struggled with the idea that this omnipotent God who's everywhere would care for me and that I could talk to him. Mm. But I guess that's what being God is about. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, isn't it? I hadn't thought of it that. Because yeah. I felt it was a bit, I don't know, almost, you know, how you think they should. that person should be concerned for me. No, they shouldn't. And I feel as though am I talking to God and he should care for me? But I guess that's the point of being God, is that you do have this almighty presence and power. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of that. Mm. well I'm very sorry we've covered a lot of ground Sarah <laughs> and gone places that we didn't expect to go but isn't that the beauty of conversation
2: mm, it is yeah it's a it's a real gift and I thank you so much for your time um Rodney and um
1: well yeah I'm just hugely relieved that the local government funding act isn't a complete disaster because so much that you do in politics and government turns out not as you would have hoped. But um, as you say, people from the bottom and the community and building that resilience from the family, through the neighbourhood and the community, that's what's going to get us through. So I thank you for your time. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send us a text, 2057. Email us at inbox at What a wonderful lady. What a wonderful people we have here in New Zealand. Um, Oh my goodness, we're so blessed.
3: The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, and also our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Our text machine is now live.
1: Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's two zero five seven. So get in touch with us now. This is real talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 AM. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's real talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Send me a text, 2057, send me an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. We're going to be talking economics with Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. No better man to be talking economics to than Bryce. Uh, years at Treasury, uh, flash degrees, spent his lifetime uh, doing his analysis. Uh, sometimes I look at Bryce and I think, bit dry, but the listeners love it because it's this cool calmness and this Clear analysis that Bryce provides. Good morning, Bryce.
0: Yes, good morning, Rodney. Thank you for having me on uh, your program again.
1: I uh, love it. I should say, too, that you're at the New Zealand Initiative, <clears throat> which pumps out more analysis and more work that's more useful than every government department I know. And it is uh, a treasure trove of analysis and information about what ails New Zealand. And thank you for that because. It, it, I don't know where people would go otherwise. Um, It's tremendous.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be part of the team, um, Rodney. I'm the old guy, of course, but uh, Eric Crampton is just phenomenally productive as an economist, as you know, and across so many subjects. And then we've got these lovely classical educated uh, people in the firm uh, working on education and uh, history of uh, New Zealand infrastructure and that sort of thing. It's such a pleasure.
1: Well, we had uh, James Kirstead on, and I meant to talk to him about University Bloat, and we ske- squeezed it in in the last 10 minutes because we spent 50 minutes talking ancient history and classics. It was just wonderful. And he made it he made it come alive. He must be a tremendous lecturer, and he must be a wonderful colleague because it's such an insight to have that insight of long history.
0: Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. It, it's a tremendous it's- thing.
1: Now, you wrote a very, well, I'd say shocking piece because you just benchmarked New Zealand against Ireland and you sort of think of Ireland and it's sort of, funny enough, a similar country to New Zealand and you took us back to 1979 and then brought us forward and it was, well, depressing actually. Tell us about the that benchmark when Ireland was relative to New Zealand in 1979 and where we are now.
0: Yes. Um it shocked me too, Rodney. Uh, it made me feel I hadn't been paying enough attention to Ireland. Um, but back in 1979, um, its income—you know—it was regarded as one of the poor countries in Europe, and its income per capita um, was uh, quite a lot lower than ours. Um, it was about 22% lower, I think. The the correct figures in my paper there. In seventy nine, and you know, we felt we were a wealthy and prosperous country. We we thought we'd been third in the world in the nineteen fifties. Well, on the latest figures, um, Ireland's just uh, it's seventy eight percent higher than New Zealand. So this is gross national income per capita, and that's the income accruing to New Zealand uh, to Irish residents. It it excludes. The income earned in Ireland by foreigners who've invested heavily in the country. So it's the benefit to residents we're talking about, and My we're goodness. comparing that with New Zealand, and it's, it had got to be seventy-seven percent higher by 2021. So you know that should make any New Zealand uh, sit on their who cares about the country, uh, sit on the edge of their seats, and, and asking themselves what's Ireland doing better
1: than us. So what, just what, to give what, that a context, yeah. and I'm sort of rounding up by a chunk, that's like in 1979, Ireland was a third poorer than us. So imagine your wage cut by a third. That would be a, yeah, 20, 22%. Yeah, a, 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 Well, over a fifth, yeah. right? Yeah, over a fifth, yeah. Getting to a quarter. And now that same worker, is on average earning 78% more. It's approaching double what we're earning. I mean, 100 would be double. It's at 78%. So yeah. they've gone from being, you know, a quarter behind us to being three quarters ahead of us. It's extraordinary. And it that's, that's in my working life.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'd I'd had my eyes on the likes of Singapore and um, and Hong Kong. And you know, uh, Lee Kuan Yew wrote that history of Singapore, where and the title of it was a good title. It was from third world to first world in one generation. Well, when I looked at the data, Ireland had actually done better to grown more than the Asian tigers. And by twenty twenty one, it was the only one of Hong Kong. Um, Singapore uh, and Ireland, which had a higher national income per capita than the US, so it, it had gone past the, the the Celtic Tiger had gone past the Asian Tigers, and I just hadn't realised, um, you know, I hadn't been watching close enough to realise that it was outperforming Singapore and Hong Kong.
1: There is that um, you focus on labour productivity, and this is to an economist, what matters, right? Productivity. It's crucial.
0: It's crucial if you care about uh, lifting people's incomes over
1: half a generation or less. And, of course, all of politics focuses on distribution. And um, explain to us the significance and the difference between the productivity in Ireland and the productivity of New Zealand and how that's produced a different result
0: yeah so this is um, the second chart in the paper which we've just released and um, uh, it's galling actually <laughs> um, I, now the measure is the is the OECDs measure the Organization for the Economic Cooperation and Development and they publish this. For member countries, there are about 38 uh, member countries, and they're mainly the prosperous countries around the world. And in 1970, um, uh, Ireland's uh, GDP per capita, which is the total of production, value added production in a country. uh, and you express that per capita, and that's an indication of how much um, income has been generated from domestic production for the benefit of foreign investors and domestic residents alike. And that's what has been produced with the capital and the labor, which is going into all the businesses in the country and into government. So that was uh, well below New Zealand's in 1970 and um now it's about 14 times higher than new zealand now this is nothing to do with inflation inflation's taken out of this this is really um uh, you know the volume of material being produced per worker so um it's, uh, a worker in ireland on average is is producing maybe 14 times the quantity of output per worker of new zealand
1: um that's staggering uh that's uh, i can't even wrap my head around that bryce
0: yeah so what what lifts income per, per worker output per worker is the amount of productive capital wrapped around each worker so um the redistributionists think that sort of capital is is sort of bad and capitalists are bad but Uh, Workers who who can produce more because they're given better equipment, more resources, um, they can achieve more and that makes them more valuable, they can be paid more. The second thing is related to that, that um, human capital is really important. So workers who are capable of uh, learning how to use the more productive and sophisticated equipment and working efficiently. They they get to be more skilled, and that skill is reflected in their wage rates too. Uh, there's also innovation. What's called economists call it total factor productivity or multi-factor productivity, and that is where uh, capital gets smarter too. New technologies come in, and uh, the uh, the new machine which replaces the old one is much better. So so workers can um, produce more with that. For the benefit of
1: both the capital provider and the worker, so while we've been telling all these Irish jokes, the Irish have been busy getting smarter, getting more yeah. productive, and getting richer, and yes. astonishingly, they've done better than Singapore at its best. Yes, per per worker,
0: and and, and you know Singapore has been one of these standout um, countries in the last fifty years. It really has gone from third world to first world in
1: one generation. If that worker in Ireland is producing fourteen times more than a worker in New Zealand, how come he or she isn't fourteen times paid fourteen times more?
0: Uh, yeah, I haven't looked up what the the relative wages. Uh, but the first point is we're talking about averages, and um, I see, and and and. Uh, uh, average incomes are never evenly distributed. The median worker will, earns less than the average worker. Yes. So, um, that, yeah, that is another thing I'd like to find time to look at. It. They so might could,
1: have, presumably, when you have this massive growth, you yeah. also have this massive entrepreneurship and you have a lot of gains accruing to the entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, and that's
0: certainly part of the island story. Um, let me just say on the wage rates, I would have done the wage comparison if the if, I, if the OECD had given me a measure, um, but I use GDP per capita. No, don't um, worry, that's fine. That's what Tell I me. But, but coming back to the entrepreneurship thing, yeah, the background to my paper is that the New Zealand initiative, um, led by Oliver Hartwich and Roger Partridge, Took a, a, a business mission to Ireland of chief executives. I didn't go on that, but I prepared these charts uh, for that mission just as background information and because I was interested myself. When they got over there on the innovation thing, what they said was that whereas New Zealand, we sort of take a, a steering approach to foreign investment and, and uh, governments keep telling. Uh, Foreign investors that it's a privilege if we allow them to invest here, in Ireland they said the, the attitude's the opposite. You, they spoke to educationalists and they were absolutely fixed on the project of training their pupils so that they'd have the skills that sophisticated high technology foreign capital coming into the country would need to be able to employ. So they said it was um, the nation got signed up to a narrative of being open open to foreign investment, uh, building the education uh, skills so that they can supply that
1: and recognition that that was best for everybody. And that was, of course, similar to Singapore opening itself up um, to foreign... uh, Yeah, yeah, Singapore
0: Singapore uh, built its prosperity on foreign investment, so did Mm -hmm. Hong Kong,
1: Not all all countries have. And, of course, to an economist, um, people investing in your country is the most wondrous thing. Yes, that's how um, New Zealand Zealand developed from colonial times. The the capital came from London. And it's this old Marxist, um, Leninist, hoary thing that when people invest in your country, they somehow rob you and yes. um, you you lose control of your destiny. And nothing could be further from the truth because you lose control of your destiny by being poor and you gain your sovereignty by being prosperous. And yes. um, Ireland now, being a prosperous country, has more options and more choices in front of it than it did um, relative to us 50 years ago. That's the essential point about
0: wealth and high incomes. It gives you options, and and in dire times <laughs> they are valuable. Just on the foreign direct investment, there is one important qualification to make, and that is it's got to be well done, and in particular, the country's got to be free of corruption. So mm. you look at Africa now and see um, China going in and investing in resources. Um, if if it's straight government to government and the, the home government is corrupt, then uh, it could well be highly ex- ex- extorted. Mm. So um, sound institutions are really important. to ma- And that's true for domestic investment too. If the situation is corrupt, mm. um, the money is going to go to corrupt people and it will be invested in the wrong things.
1: and And corrupt projects in the sense that they're not offering the best return. I was quite shocked growing up when I started studying economics, and I remember a textbook that we had I did development economics and it was I can remember it to this day. It was Michael Tadara, I'm sure you've heard of him and mm-hmm. and, and the text was and he had done the study of government aid to poor countries and why it always uh, failed. and it was just extraordinary because he explained that what we thought of as aid, was basically government-to-government transfers. And so uh, rich countries were handing money off to these other uh, countries, but they were giving it to their governments. And invariably, the rest the reason the government that country was poor, it was terrible. The
0: governments were already oppressing their people. Yes, we were trying to fight against them, and here was the Western world giving the corrupt guys more money and, to buy and, more military to uh, to
1: oppress their people. We were looking at these poor, starving kids, and they were poor and starving because of this tyrannical government. And then, out of the goodness of our heart, our government would be sending that tyrannical dictator more money. Um, it was to, to pop him, and essentially, he or she, well, it was always a, he would use the money to um keep in power. And, and this is this extraordinary thing about economics because it takes an everyday, like Tom Sowell, uh, an everyday narrative and turn it on its head so that when a foreign company invests in a poor country and employs people. That's the best thing in the world for those people. But we 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 say, oh look, Nike are ripping them off. And you're saying, no, they're generating income and wealth, they're lifting that country. And when as they as they gain in their prosperity, they won't they won't need to be sending their kids to work. There's there's no way around this. You have to produce. A country has to produce in order to have wealth. And you read the newspaper, listen to the politicians, re- listen to the opinion writers outside of the New Zealand initiative, and it's just we're endlessly cutting up a cake that no one's baking. Yes,
0: I, it, and it's partly a time horizon thing. I think people people who want government to spend more money or regulate to stop people from doing this or that, they don't. Think about how it's going to play out, um what how people are going to respond. So they don't think we well, like the example we talking about about saying gov- uh, government to government aid is great, and uh, the prosperous countries should be giving one percent of their GDP to foreign governments. Well, it, it's a failure to think through what's going to happen if you give money to a corrupt di- dictatorship. Mm. And that's what I noticed in the 1980s with uh, the, you know, the Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson reforms, that they were painful in the short run because things were so out of kilter, the deficits in public debt were so so high. Um, but people who thought ahead and um, could see that incentives were improving, and it was important to get out of the hole but the the opponents could see no more, nothing further than the immediate pain. And it was a time the big difference between those of us, including me who are part of that debate was in time horizon and and um, unended consequences. I remember when the farm subsidies were being ripped out, the the Dominion Post ran a front page article, the entire wire wrapper was dying. <laughs> and uh, it's about as inflammatory as you could get. Well land values were plummeting because the the subsidies were being pulled out of farming. But that's how New Zealand got to subsidy-free farming which is as is, is much healthier and one of the few countries in the world to do it. So there's there's short-term pain for long-term gain. but when you're looking at these island charts you're seeing massive
1: long-term gain. When I, um, I've had on the show uh, Ewan McQueen, who's written a wonderful book called One Sun in the Sky. And if you haven't read it, Bryce, I heartily recommend it to you. Yes, I know you, and I would like to read it. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. And he, you fall in love with these great New Zealanders before the signing of the treaty, at the signing of the treaty, and more particularly after the signing of the treaty. And there were Maori leaders and European leaders, English leaders, who had this extraordinary vision of a country working together. And there were all these problems, you know, um, fights and arguments and disputes over land or who did want, and there'd be hotheads wanting to seek revenge. And then there were these amazingly calm voices who were looking past, if you like, the immediate upset and the immediate conflict to a, and they had a vision of a future. And it's spellbinding because this is them in their words. You know, they were giving speeches to calm down uh, the country. And I was so impressed by their ability to lift, to even see it. If you know what I mean, it's 1860, and that they could see a future, looking past the immediate problems. It'd be like being in the darkest days of World War II and seeing, you know, a a prosperous future. And and it is a very interesting thing about time horizons, and of course, um, news. And politics is all the here and now. Economics is looking um, further out, and then these uh, people who have great political leadership and cultural uh, and social leadership—they're looking out beyond uh, generations. Um, and that's what you got with that one sun in the sky. Definitely the the time horizon, um, and also thinking through the implications Um, my daughter went off to school this is three years ago and they were running a campaign uh, in the school, they had the kids writing projects about how to stop child Uh, labour my oldest daughter who's called Liberty, someone had sent them her the books called the Tuttle Twins, which are very expensive books, but they're wonderful and their children's books written um, on a free market basis. And so Liberty did the speech about how you were basically cutting off your nose to spite your face, because um, it's it's the, the way of poverty to have to have your children work for, for a living. And if you denied them that work, uh, who was going to provide for them? How are they going to provide for themselves? And um, as she explained it, her poor teacher was left stuttering because she had no argument against her but nonetheless marked her down because they just have this basic failing of economics and of the natural condition of uh, humankind, which is one of grinding poverty. Yes, yeah. So um, we we need to work on that. Tell me, we had a cultural difference in Ireland compared to New Zealand. We're in Ireland they were open and positive about foreign investment right through the school system right through the country they could see the benefits and feel the benefits compared to New Zealand what other differences were there that made those,
0: this uh, well I wasn't thing? on the mission but those were the the two big messages which um uh the, the people on the mission uh brought back and they're, they're both dear to the initiatives heart you know education uh, is so important for kids critical for a country's future really that you have a good education system and ours is clearly failing and heading in the right in the wrong direction so that was a big thrust um then uh and then behind the productivity growth the big story the big contrast um, with New Zealand was Ireland's openness to uh foreign direct investment and um actually Actually, I think I might be wrong on that uh, productivity per capita. That fourteen percent, might uh, fourteen times higher, might have been um, foreign direct investment per capita, but um, the difference is yeah, is more like fourfold. I think looking at the chart. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that was that was the next big thing in terms of detail was uh, the degree to which Ireland. Had, had been successful in attracting um, foreign direct investment compared to New Zealand.
1: Isn't it interesting that we have tended to look at micro changes to the economy, you know, getting rid of this regulation, getting rid of that. And what you're discussing here are big cultural issues. Like it's not, of course, it's the, regulation of foreign investment. But before that, before we think about regulation, it's the attitude and the cultural view of foreign direct investment. If the people hate it, if they've been taught to hate it, if they've been told that this is bad, then the politicians follow and it's seen as, a, a, as it were at best, a necessary evil in New Zealand. Oh, well, you know, we've got to let these people invest in New Zealand. Same with the education system. We've tended to separate out, oh, there's economic policy and then there's education policy. And here's the initiative concentrating hugely on education because it's not only necessary to have a prosperous and open society is to have people well-schooled, well-educated, understanding the world around them and open to ideas. It's crucial to economic performance you know, it's it's not just about tax rates and red tape, is it? No,
0: no. There's there's a cult, uh, culture and and culture and narratives really matter. And for a country to have a narrative in which people aren't being polarized into tribes, like in Ireland, you know, a Catholic versus Protestants, always long been a, a sense of polarization, Um but we we're, we're becoming much more tribal in New Zealand, I think, and in, in losing. what well, Don Brash and others are doing their best to retain the narrative of of one person, one vote. Uh, everyone's the same. Don't treat everybody uh, equally, regardless of their religion or their ethnicity or their language, etc. Um, that that narrative seems to be fading in New Zealand, and um, it, uh, it's becoming more polarising, and uh, what's in it for me and my group um, is is a very dangerous narrative that's developing in in New Zealand, and um, needs needs to be strongly resisted. That um, you know our DNA is all essentially the same. The colour of us, skin is just a superficial sort of thing. Mm. Um, your background, you know, your your, your your family background and history is what it is, but get on with it. Um, you don't you're not tied by that. You can you can make what you want to of your own life um, and escape your predicaments. And work is such a crucial part of that. It's a social activity and um, it gives people a sense of achievement. And if people are sitting on welfare, there's no sense of achievement in that. And if they've been cut out of jobs and can't get work. Or well, you start to feel you can't contribute to society, and you start to feel worthless. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, so so to get precious about too precious about the quality of the job, and then to shut people out and keep them on welfare is um, a pretty evil thing. I don't mean that the people doing that are evil, but they're not
1: thinking through, in my view, the longer term mm. consequences. The um yes, that the way we disdain a job at McDonald's or a cleaner's job or a menial job, um, when you learn everything starting yeah. out working at McDonald's or working as a cleaner or mowing lawns. Um and yet these jobs have a well that they're treated with disdain and um by the powers that be I fear or the elite and and so too the people that do them yeah
0: uh, too many people only to go to university and and yes. said, i I had a dramatic example my you know my wife was a teacher at nineeye college some decades ago, some pretty rough kids there. And we went into McDonald's um for a bit of a fundraising occasion, and the young they were all young people there, they lifting the minimum wage hadn't shut uh, young people out of McDonald's. and there was this this young guy there, absolutely focused on the job, going like the clappers had it, and um, sparky and enjoying himself. and Lee looked at him and said he was pretty well a dropout from Nai, Nai College. We couldn't get him to do anything. It was just endless trouble. And he had a chat to him, and um, he had a chance of getting flown over to the US um, for the McDonald's competition about who could do hamburgers the fast, fastest. <laughs> so so he, he was just on a high.
1: Isn't that great? Isn't that great? I, I, I um I just think that's absolutely true. And he will probably end up, employing all the bright kids that are accountants and um uh lawyers he will be their boss if you know what i mean Yeah, yeah that's right. at yeah. university i had a very dear friend who dropped out after year one and went off and the last we heard of him he was shearing sheep on the chatham islands and um he emerged years and I felt dreadful. Oh, poor guy, you know, he missed out on his exams. He should have done more work. And there he is, you know, shearing sheep. Well, he returned some years later and employed everyone that graduated with <laughs> science degrees and, and law <laughs> degrees and yeah. degrees because um he he wasn't selling his credentials, you know, he was selling his ability to think and 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 and, and to work hard. And so when we're again, when we're talking about this um, education, it's the culture uh, within the schools that we're creating. And you and I could talk about that at some length because, um, oh, my goodness, you know, it's not a it's not a work ethic or a, there's 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 truth to search for. And it's hard to get. Um, it seems to me a lot of the schooling now is activist or project based um, and Elizabeth Rata is fabulous. I must get her on again because she's fabulous at that. She describing great. this, and, and she describes what's happening in the schools, and then I look at what my kids are doing, and I think, oh, my goodness. You'll be pleased to know that my oldest daughter, her current plan is she's 12. Uh, she's very, very bright, does very, very well at everything. Her current plan is as soon as she's able to, she's leaving school and going to work for McDonald's. And um, her plan is to – she's got a three-step plan. One, leave school as soon as I can, work for McDonald's. Two, open a restaurant. Three, become a billionaire. And <laughs> I think there's a few steps between two and three that she <laughs> needs to develop, but she's she's making a start. And I don't discourage it.
0: No, no. <laughs> That's
1: great. Because I think um, – there's nothing more dreary than uh, these kids going off to university without a clue what they're going to do with their life and ending up at 23, 24 without a clear goal and thinking about going back to university and sort of not achieving adulthood, if you know what I mean. Um, You sort of You've got to keep moving, and it's the best years of your life to be doing stuff and to be learning stuff, and I just look at it and I think, man, they're just not producing that. the go-getters that I suspect uh, Ireland is doing. Now, just another thing that occurs to me, Bryce, talking about this, I well remember an economist friend of mine telling me that you tend to live in a redistributive socialist state if you make your original living as a country extracting resources, and he explained it like this that you're sitting there in New Zealand and you see people coming here and they take the gold, they take the whales, they take the seals, they take the trees, they take the sheep, and you see everything going away and you don't see what's being built. And so you see uh, economic development as a zero-sum or negative-sum game because, oh, we had trees and now they're gone. Oh, we had whales and now they're gone. Whereas he said, if you live in Hong Kong or Singapore, you're sitting on a rock. (laughs) You know, you've got, you realise that you have to produce to live and that you're sitting in New Zealand and you're not realising that you're producing to live, you think you're just extracting and extracting, and extracting. Have you come across that idea?
0: Yes, yeah, well, that's the, the great Henry Simon um, debate, isn't it? The view that, um, the environmentalist view, it comes out of, of Malthusian theories yes. that um, human population growth is going to exhaust the the, the world's resources, and we'll, we'll, we're going to run out. But, of course, that... That fails to see the dynamic adjustments processes and the price mechanism. And if you're not taught economics, you don't understand that. But Roger used to have that lovely one one-line rebuttal of, of that uh myopic sort of tunnel vision and it was well the stone age didn't end because people ran out of stones (laughs) 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 that's pretty funny right we
1: we ran out of rocks
0: yes and people people who don't understand that we'll talk about the world running out of oil or this or that well it will never happen not because the humans anyway because the price will get so high that people will switch to something else, and they'll invent new ways of doing things and that's that's the that's the real downfall of the methusian stuff he He couldn't conceive that the world would um get so much more efficient at agriculture that instead of having eighty percent of of people working on the land, you'd get down to five or seven yeah. percent and people would be eating a lot lot more food and that. So that's the other thing about us economists, I think, because we look further ahead um, and worry more about quality of
1: institutions and incentives. Um,
0: We're more optimistic. um, It's a funny thing. It's a funny thing
1: because I studied economics to prove why, why it was wrong. And because and I was an environmentalist and all these economists were going around with this uh, cheery, optimistic view, which I clearly knew was wrong because they didn't understand how the physical world worked. And so I went off and studied economics and very quickly discovered that it was me that was wrong. And there was a depth of understanding and, and, and a nuance in economics that I, I hadn't appreciated. And, uh, and in particular that there's this ultimate resource which is called human ingenuity or the human mind. Mm. And um, if you allow for entrepreneurship, um, yes, um, it's extraordinary, and it's been extraordinary over our time. And every doomsday profit has been um, proven wrong. Um, but there is one thing, and listeners are troubled by this, Bryce, and this is what you and I would call, I think, I think I can include you in there's this idea of this crony capitalism that's now occurring and it's very, very problematic I think. And it's very off putting. And the idea is you have these environmental companies, you know, and they're investing in wind technology and they're investing in this and governments or the film industry, uh, where governments sidle alongside them, and help them, and give them direct money, uh, lighten their load, give them a free pass with uh, regulation, and that leaves a sour taste in your mouth. And there's, and I have to say, I share it. We have this grave concern about BlackRock because I have no problem with uh, institutional. Investors investing in New Zealand, I welcome it. But you feel as though when it's done at a government level and that the Prime Minister's meeting with these investors, that deals are being done that aren't in our necessary interests. Would you care to comment on that?
0: Yeah, um, it's always intrigued me why Labour governments, with the exception of the Long government, promote corporate welfare. Because um, uh, governments have political incentives, businesses have uh, incentives to make profits to get their hands on money, uh, and the danger is when governments get involved with welfare, um, with, with corporates and deals, that the money will flow from taxpayers through government and, and into the hands of pockets it shouldn't be throwing into, but. Um, and and Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson Raj, largely got rid of corporate welfare to their their great credit, but it's been brought back in. I thought I mean I thought New Zealand first sort of provincial growth fund was just appalling from that point of view. And I see the Auditor General to give him credit has written reports saying there isn't nearly enough accountability uh for where that money's gone. And it's you know, it's not clear where all of it has gone. Um so yeah, yeah. Um, governments, in my view, and that's the argument for privatization again: um, that governments' interests are not commercial. When you get them involved in commercial enterprises, there's usually no good justification for it, no public good justification. It's and it weakens the. It gives the government itself a conflict of interest. As a regulator, it should be um, sitting over. Um, the companies that's regulating and be independent of them, so it's impartial. But when it's running the company itself, another part of the government is um, it's compromised. There's a conflict of interest be, be, between the two roles, and the politicians sitting up above them um, have got an incentive to sort of massage that over and, and not give it. Not, and, not, and we've not, seen publicity.
1: this. We've seen this blow up in the last six years, on a massive scale with the provincial fund, or it's just a political slush fund, where it's being handed out by politicians without any uh, accountability. We're seeing money handed to uh, journalism, which is so obviously wrong. Um, The idea that you would hand money over to uh, newspapers and then actually require as part of that deal that they not write about certain things or they write about certain things in terms of approved government narrative is horrific, and yet we've hardly blinked an eye. Uh, we're now seeing these, this co-governance, which is the worst of the worst, where we've established iwi companies or corporations, large corporations controlling huge resources who have had a prime say on resource planning where government policy goes and therefore can influence to favour their corporation. But now we're going to add to it um, an extreme level of co-governments where it's like a 50-50 sharing thing. This is like um, going back to the worst of what we used to see in the third world, in India and in Fiji, where the institutions of good governance are completely broken down, and greed and graft come to the fore. It's not a it's not a people thing. It's not a race thing. It's a consequence of the way the rules have have get established. Right.
0: Yeah, and not treating everyone as equal, creating privileges. I mean, Roger Douglas is the one-liner for what he was about, was eliminating privilege. Yes. We're we're busy re-establishing them, and it's very divisive and very polarizing, and it's not going to produce the outcomes which people want. They think that they're going to see people at the bottom doing better, but they're not. And um, Thomas Sowell explained that with many of his publications, why affirmative action gives disappointing results.
1: Well, we've got the added, added problem because we are so intermingled that you see, um, like, if you're in America, there's quite a line between black America and white America. In New Zealand there's no such hard and fast line, and you see these um, this ill ease being created because your great 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 grandfather happened to be uh, someone right mm. and and the the potential for conflict and upset is extreme is it not
0: oh yeah it's it's. it's, it's how do
1: you see you're sitting in Wellington you've sat around government. And you understand economics and incentives. And Oliver R. Hartwich was on, and he was amazing because he was optimistic and positive and thinking the best of people and that in a piecemeal way, we can reverse this and go get back out into the sunny uplands which i guess is what we did in the in the beginning in the 80s in my lifetime how do you see this reversing itself in new zealand as we go forward i i the way i'm thinking about it is that
0: debates in new zealand are highly derivative of what's going on overseas so when new zealand liberalized we were following what Maggie Thatcher was doing in England, Ronald Reagan in, in, in the US, and Hawke and Keating in Australia. All this, all this polarizing, diversity, cancel culture, sort of stuff, and um, <laughs> intersectionality, is a drive to divide us and to try and make as many as people as possible see themselves as a victims of, a, of an oppressive sort of system. And therefore, unable to really fend for themselves, except by ripping someone else down. And um, we we've been following in that. Our universities have been following in that. They haven't been leading in that. So my sense of it is that when the tides hopefully swings back to more of a of a view about uh, every person deserving equal treatment and of equal worth before the eyes of the state, that and universities getting off this divisive sort of extremism, that's got to come from the US in particular, and I'm seeing signs of it there. And and the UK, and this free speech movement is a very important part of trying to head off um, this intolerance uh, which this um, this
1: victimhood um, drive is, is creating. We're also, I think you're right. I think that's a great, I hadn't thought of this before you said it, because I don't know whether it's just me, but looking at the US and the UK, you feel there's a sickness of it and it's gone too far, if you know what I mean. They've gone too far too quickly. And there's this massive resistance now, and it's also coming at a level of a principle, you know, so it's not an argument about you can't shut me down, it's an argument in favour of free speech. Uh, It's not an argument about whether this racial group should get this or not, it's an argument about everyone being treated equally. And so there's this resurgence of uh, looking at it and saying, hang on, there are some important principles here. And the other fascinating thing to me to watch is how it's whoever is pushing this and however it's being pushed, they can't stop themselves. They've got to go to the absurdity, and then they've got to turn on each other. And you can see that happening too, can't you? Yes, you can, Um, I I particularly follow the the gender stuff um, because I find that sort of easy to follow. It's not like climate change or um, pandemic planning or something like that. It's like I think a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl, and yes, there can be some anomalies, but this idea – um, now of you have an inner gender soul that is really you and your authentic self has just gone to the nth degree. Um, and you can see the absurdity of it, you know, starting to collapse almost under its own weight. And so you'd like to think that, and you see sporting codes woke, waking up to it as, as, as particular competitions get destroyed by a mediocre male turning up and winning gold. Yeah, and and that and that and that will uh, hopefully turn it well. That's I I love talking to the New Zealand Initiative, Bryce, because I can get a little down, you know. And um, Oliver's view was very optimistic. Uh, your view is optimistic because, just like we chose to go down this path, we can choose to come out of it, right? And we've seen Ireland, um, an absolute European basket case. To being literally unbelievable not a rock star economy like you know we like to pretend we had in 2017 we're talking a seriously good uh, economic performance beating Singapore oh my goodness it can be done
0: yeah and um, we I, I don't want to leave listeners uh, with, with the view that uh, we just have to wait for the rest of the world to change Um I, I support. I'm not a member. I'm not a, a, an executive member of it, the Free Speech Union, but yes. that, that's a really important part of helping New Zealand get out of this divisive hole. And I think it's doing a great job. So, yes, uh, yeah, things yes. like the Free Speech Union, are things we as as individuals can do something about. Just before you sign off, um, right now I was, you know, I was, you know, I got my figures utterly wrong on. Uh, m- in mixing up investment per capita and income per capita. So for the podcast, in 2020, New Zealand's income per capita was U- uh, 42,500 U- uh, US dollars. And in Ireland, it was 120,000. So that was 2.6 times New Zealand's wow. figure. Yeah. yeah, massive either way, but very um, amazing 14.
1: Well, thank you, Bryce. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. As you can see, just uh, a wonderful human being, a wonderful analyst, and he always brings us back to reality, and he's done that for me for most of my career. He's been amazing. Uh, Bryce used to help me when I was an MP and a minister. He'd help anyone that asked for it. And he had a great way of, um, sometimes annoyingly, because you were caught up in politics, but bringing you back to reality. Bryce, you're a total treasure. Thank you for coming on your show, our show. You have a, a great rest of your show. For everyone else, you can remember, you can text me at zero, uh, 2057, email me inbox at Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening. on rally check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde and it's mailbag remember you can text me at 2057 oh how i love getting your texts you can email me inbox at rallycheck.radio oh i love getting your emails and my joy is overflowing because i have got such a lovely mailbag such a lot of report and a lot of suggestions about how i could do better Oh, hi guys. Fabulous interview with Mary Hobbs and Rodney Hyde. It is truly great to hear humble Kiwis talk common sense and hold space to let them both be heard. New Zealand has lost its way in lots of ways, but interviews like this bring hope. Thanks, Tracy. Absolutely, Tracy. Wasn't Mary wonderful? And she's always positive, always fantastic. Rodney, thanks for the heads up via Mary Hobbs interview on dailytelegraph.co.nz. I've bookmarked, like yourself, I look for where to make a difference. Doubt my knowledge, but see clearly now the good versus evil. Bastards. Environment. Mark Rifton. Mm, they are. Rodney, I was online when Ardern went on Facebook Live regarding adverse effects. By 10pm, it had over 20,000 hits. And by 8am Monday morning, it was 40k plus. Then they deleted it. Isn't that amazing? Remember, we had Ali Cook on, and she's explaining how that happened on Jacindra Ardern's uh, Facebook page. Uh, Rodney, both you and Ali are real stars. Please tell her. I will. Thanks for all that you do, Marlene. Dear Rodney, I love your show, but I wish you would listen to your guest more. Ah, this is a common criticism, and I have to do better. I get so excited, and I'm sorry. I let them speak, and please, please try not to talk over them constantly. It must be so frustrating for them. Thanks. I sincerely apologize. And sometimes I think there's a pause and I feel the need to rush to fill it. And I think the guest might be struggling. Oh. I'll do better. I need to allow pauses, I think. Dear Rodney, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but you speak over the lovely people. Another one. After you've asked questions and or when they are trying to articulate something, it gets a little frustrating when trying to listen respectfully to the guest. No disrespect to you, Rodney, our lovely man. Oh, how sweet. That's a way to give a criticism. Um, I will do better. If you want to watch a really good documentary about this whole pandemic, Was Ozgrad, you need to watch Sound of Freedom on the 24th of August. Thank you, Nick. Absolutely. I saw the way those who stood against the jabs and mandates were treated, and although I chose two jabs, right from the start, I marched alongside those in the freedom marches against what was happening. I'm still angry with how they were being treated, and I can't believe more people couldn't see through how disgusting their behaviours was towards their fellow New Zealanders. Today I will stand with those that chose chose bodily autonomy. So brave. I hope one day they'll get heartfelt apologies from those that were filled with so much fear and hate that they forgot compassion. That's a beautiful note. Thank you for that. Hi, Rodney. Not sure you've got the time for this. Of course I have. But please ask me how we get to remove party politics from major issues facing New Zealand. Oh, that's a good question. Such as health, roading, transport, education and defence. Christopher Luxon is hinting at this, but exactly how do we stop one party throwing out the previous one's ideas and starting all over again? There's no continuity from one party to the next. It's like a big dog having to pee on top of every other dog sent. Yeah, I think I get that. And it is bankrupting us. Ideally, we'd have a panel of experts nominated by the governing party and approved by the opposition, but I can't see that happening with the current Labour bunch. Regards, Jan. Ooh. Imagine who Helen Clark or Jacinda Ardern or Chris Hipkins would appoint to that board. Mm, That's scary. Meryl, you're not correct. You have the wool over your eyes or selective views. I saw this problem a decade ago when I arrived. I've been telling you and everyone on your... for ages. Even NZME ignored it. The one thing that Labour did was expose all this. Not that I'm a Labour supporter. The whole MMP system in Parliament is a problem. We will have to start from scratch to fix this. I'm hoping with a new media enterprise like RCR, we'll turn this around. Nick, man two. Yeah, I don't know. I'm always a bit worried about starting from scratch. You know, I always think mm, they did a good job with the American Revolution, but the French Re- Revolution, not so much. Hi, Rodney. I listened to your interview with Ali. She's awesome. Ah, oh, she is so awesome. I remember Jacinda's post on Facebook asking about jab side effects. I'm sure there are over 30,000 responses to that post. And yes, many were deleted. I thought it was Facebook's algorithms removing the comments. Interested to hear that Ali said it was Jacinda's staff. Maybe it was both. Anyway, I remember the following because it stood out to me as too much to be a coincidence. I think it was the Israeli Prime Minister who apparently put up a very similar post on his social media and the response was the same, thousands of responses, detailing harm and many deleted. I can't remember where I read this, unfortunately, so I'm going by memory. Anyway, that made me wonder if there wasn't a random act, but rather those two Prime Ministers had been advised to do this. Maybe it was a way to track or flag those who weren't following the narrative, or for some other nefarious reason. Food for thought. I don't for a minute believe Jacinda had a shred of concern or empathy for those who had been injured or suffered side effects. Her Facebook post was out of character. Was too, wasn't it? I don't know of any politician that's shown any empathy or concern for the injured. If someone has had that experience, I'd love to hear, because I'd love to think there was someone who was, you know, concerned for them. Winston Spe- Peters has spoken about it, but mm, you sort of feel it's a vote-catching thing. I'd love to hear about an MP that cared about people that were injured. It would restore my faith. The date of Jacinda's post was on the 26th of September 2021. I could still find it using Brave as my search browser. It doesn't display the number of comments any longer, but many comments can be scrolled through and read. Interesting. Hey, Rodney, love your work. I'm hoping you'll be brave enough to swallow your next red pill, Second World War History. It's the polar opposite of what you've learned your whole life. Remember, Victor's right to history, and the world has been a corrupt place for a long time. Happy discuss if you have time, Paul. Thank you, Paul. There's a lot of funny things, isn't there, (laughs) about history? Thank you so much, Muriel, for all that you do. Respect, Paul. Hi, Rodney. Great interview with Muriel. Very informative. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Rodney. Another great, excellent interview. Rodney, Sam Bailey has a tribunal hearing going on at the moment in Christchurch. That's the doctor. And your husband, Mark Bailey. That'd be great to have on. Hi, Rodney. Really enjoy listening to you. Loved your talk to Muriel this morning. Would be great to have her back to explain to are, to Buria, whatever it is. The very worst thing the government has snuck in on us, and so very few people realise how bad it is for our democracy. Thank you for your dedication and hard work, Marilyn. Marilyn, it is a total pleasure doing this show and being on this radio, and to have you listen to me. I feel blessed, and for you to take the trouble to send me such a kind note, double blessed. Thank you. Hi Rodney, I enjoy your show. I enjoyed listening to Dr. Muriel Newman this morning. She's great. Hey, I went to a meeting last night here in Wanganui. A, a guy by the name of Jeff was telling us about a website. Him and a friend have started. He's been working on the idea of a referendum, like Switzerland has had for over a hundred years. He was promoting the idea as an excellent way to take the country take back our country from tyrannical politicians. I thought it was a reasonable idea. Check out his website and see what you think. The website is Zealand. Thank you for your show, Rodney. I enjoy your honesty and common sense. Cheers, Grant. Oh, thank you, Grant. And thank you for the note. Hi, Rodney. Lara here. I sent you an email asking if you could share how you stopped the gender ideology and sexual grooming In your children's school, we're trying to protect our children from this vile and evil agenda. Any advice? Much appreciated. Thank you for all your great work in revealing the truth in our country, and we all know we won't get it from our controlled media. Keep up the great work. You're very much appreciated. Thank you so much, Lara. Well, I didn't do anything, but clearly the school did a 180-degree turn because last year that pink, Day was huge. Pride Day was huge. All the teachers were on it. This year, nothing. Oh, I was so relieved. I don't know why kids need to be proselytized to about gender ideology. And then last year, my daughter in year seven, which is standard five for our older listeners, she had these without our knowledge, she had Inside Out, an activist organization funded by the by the government, turn up with some young teenagers who identified, let's just say, in various ways, many of them very creative, and they had two hours with the kids. They are 11, these kids, and they got all the genders explained to them, and I guess how it's called. And then when it rolled around this year, and they said, oh, we've got this health thing, I was onto it, and I emailed them, and I said, any outside groups coming in? And they said, no. And I said to the teacher, a little worried, is there any teaching that a boy can be a girl or vice versa? And she replied, no. So there's been a turnaround for the better. I don't know, it's hard enough being a young kid without that rubbish being taught to you. And why can't kids just be kids and be beautiful kids without having nonsense poured into their heads? Hi, Rodney. All the current political parties in Parliament are truly terrible. Yes, we do have good politicians like Vivek Ramaswamy gets an MTG. He's in the US. Nick, there are some great politicians coming through there and RFK. Hi, Rodney. Have enjoyed your show. Uh, if you get a chance to listen to Winston, do so. He's getting my vote. I believe he's a viable option. Cheers, Rachel. Yeah, I've got a lot of people saying that. I struggle to listen to Winston. I've listened to him a lot. Um, but I know what you say because he's the only one saying what we like to hear. Rodney, an inspired vote, Liz Gunn's New Zealand Royal Party. Her positions are enlightened. Some sound extreme but are from a place of logic. Yes, they are, and I like Liz Gunn, and I've just texted her to have her on the show. We'll bring her on because she's a wonderful woman. She was very sweet to me when she was on uh, television too. I mean, she'd ask the tough questions, but she wasn't rude and wasn't rude off camera like some of them. Dear Rodney, I feel the small parties, although coming from excellent intentions needed right now, are wasted votes. If they all joined together, it would make more sense as their votes would be divided and weak, or if some of our smaller parties joined with New Zealand first, maybe. Yeah, parties don't seem to join them up. Remember when Peter Dunn in the first uh, MMP election, he mocked up a whole lot of parties. Um, he was a sort of small party gobbler, and... Um, he consumed. I think it got to about a dozen in the finish, but each time he added them, his sort of vote would go down because it would all become confused. And in the finish, I think, I oh, did get in. No, he just got in himself originally, and then in two thousand and two, the worm liked them and the debates. If you hadn't seen it, and he got a lot of MPs. Yeah, that's right. Ah. Uh, I don't mind voting for small parties, and I don't think my vote's wasted in this sense. If they're saying something that I agree with strongly, I will vote for them because I'm sending a signal to the other parties that what they're saying is important. I'd love them to get into Parliament, but even just sending the signal, it's like a referendum. And parties do pay attention to those so-called wasted votes, and if they want the votes for themselves, they'll need to adopt those policies. Rodney, Jacinda's government did wicked things. Certainly did. I had the police arrive at my door during lockdown. I live at the seaside near a motor camp. I have Lilliput Library at my gate. I want kids, adults to love books as I do. Police made me empty my library. Love your show, Ollie. What a country. Can you imagine being a police officer and going to a person's house because they've put books out for kids to enjoy. And you say, take away your books. Jacinda then tells us to, take away your books. You can't be handing out books. Could be COVID in those books. And a police officer bothers to do that? Try calling them when there's a crime being committed. But if you're someone's handing out free books at the gate, oh, they'll turn up. My goodness. Yes, we had a terrible government. Jacinda was dreadful. Rodney, my wife has suffered a stroke after her second vaccination. It's disgusting, the treatment we have received. I absolutely believe all those politicians who have not pushed for inquiry into the vaccination do not have our best interests at heart. Well, Mike, I 100% agree with you. I would love to have a chat with you about our story. Mike and Emma. Well, Mike, I will talk to you. Thank you. I like hearing what Mary Hobbs has to say. I find her logical, compassionate and a solution focused. Rodney, can you please interview her again? I will. I'll interview Mary Hobbs again and again and again because I love her and give her the time to talk. No offence, but most of the talking, oh, I'm so sorry. Perhaps ask her to summarise her articles. That is the kind of logical content that will open people's eyes and minds. Thank you for what you do. I'm going to put that to one page because I have to contact Mike. i put that to one side. Concerned citizens, good afternoon, Rodney. How can we fight against interference in our election and be sure who we vote for will get in? Any advice would be greatly welcomed. It's a good question. I've always assumed that we had good uh, voter integrity, but um, we certainly couldn't say that about the United States, and we need to keep an eye on things here, because what happens over here follows. I don't trust our our mail-in vote for local councils, not at all. I always think we should vote on the day, and you should turn up in person. Hi, Rodney. I listened to your comments with interest about Andrew Tate and then your humble admission to a listener that you may have got it wrong regarding your impressions of his respect to women. As a strong feminist, I'm very interested in this too. My son wanted to do Andrew Tate as a subject for his Level 1 NCEA art project this year, but was told by his art teacher that would not be appropriate because of Tate's sexist views about women. I asked my son, a bright boy who's experienced a division of our culture when he was turned away at age 12 for not having a Vax passport, from open-air camping at the Kai'iwi Lakes in Northland, At the time, he said he felt like a second-class citizen, and it was heartbreaking for me as a mother to experience his hurt. So I've bent over backwards to listen to his interest in Tate, and while I've not heard of Tate prior, whom my boys enjoy because of his kickboxing, I took the time to listen to him. Not once did I hear anything negative towards women, and as a strong Kiwi chick, I was listening hard. So do go and have a listen to his speeches. I feel as though he's been labelled a misogynist, just like when we have labelled conspiracy theorists, tinfoil hat wearers and right-wing nutters. But I'd love to hear what you think, given the respect we have as a family for you. When I ask my son about how he feels about not being able to express his views freely regarding Tate, he is so cute and humble and acknowledges that most people just don't understand. So he is forgiving. But you know what? I think his choice would have been promo, promo, primo, primo, and topical. And more important than any other choice of famous people right now, and that is to experience of being the underclass and misjudged for the jabby thing. Love your work, Libby. Yes, yeah, so I think he would have been great. And look, Andrew Tate says a lot of great things, clearly. I did see a mashup up where someone had gone around and collected some pretty derogatory things that he had said. Um, but he's also said a lot of good things. I'm prepared to withhold judgment. Um, I honestly don't have time to listen to everything he said because I think he said a lot. Um, but yes, why couldn't you do? God, we're precious, aren't we? Oh, you can't tell a story about Andrew Tate, he's a sexist. Well, who do you leave out? Right? Some of the greatest people in history have had sketchy bits to their lives, sketchy views. We're not all saints. There's only been one perfect human on earth. Only one. Hi, Rodney. The talk today with Dr. Newman was enlightening and scary. I attended a stop co governance meeting, which was great and also enlightening. If National Act are not saying that they'll turn around co governance, then they definitely will not. We'll need to put our faith in the party that states they will. Otherwise, it is a wasted vote. Otherwise, expect the same result. We're in for a rough ride until the sheep wake up to the fact that Labour and National Act are singing from the same hymn book. Where do you find these great guests? It gives me a little hope. Every sitting MP should be facing at least three judges, if not something worse. Chris, good on you, Chris. Awesome interview with Mary Hobbs on Rodney's show. I love the way Rodney conducts his interviews. It's like he's chatting to a good friend over coffee. Well, I do feel that way with Mary. Hi, uh, just wanted to let you know that I contacted the platform to see if Rodney's interview with Mark Bailey was available anywhere. I emailed them on Monday but received no response. I sent a follow-up on Wednesday. I still have had no response. So I can guess, I can assume after five days, they won't wish to reply. All the best, Simon. Yes, I think my interviews there disappeared, most of them. I was listening to Peter Williams the other day, and he mentioned that you had done an interview with Dr. Mark Bailey when you were on the platform. Yes, I did. I have searched for this interview, but can't find it. Maybe it's no longer available. I've listened to a few Mark Bailey podcasts recently, and they're such a paradigm shifter here. Truly, they're a wake-up moment. I wonder if you could have them on RCR. Great idea. Thank you, Simon. Oh, I'm just moving through. We're getting to the end of the mailbag, but isn't it wonderful? And what great comments. Uh, I feel blessed. I th- oh, here's a good one. I think you should devote a large part of your program to the upcoming Auckland Council consulta- consultation on Mary ward seats. It is clear that many in the council wish to attain the independent Maori statutory board and have Mary ward seats. You have an in-depth knowledge in this area, and I think the council is not transparent with their information as most of the Auckland public have no idea about the power and influence of the stat- Mary statutory board already has. Also, they are selected, not elected, and are accountable to no one. Damn right. I made the point that nowhere in the Western world, or anywhere for that matter, is political power and power over budget management is given to a group of people who are legally accountable to no one. Cheers, Lee. That's a great idea, Lee, and I see that Don Brash is putting something out on it, but if you can email me who would be a good person, I'll get Don on. And there may be others. Hello RCR, love the station. Your replays fill the majority of my listening time and I find it so refreshing and informative. I've been listening and reading Who is the Real Government? The Greatest Deception by Kiwi Ewan Campbell. Fascinating and thought-provoking to say the least. He has quite a wealth of knowledge and experience gained in battling big fertilizer, the law and understanding our constitution. He'd be worthy of a lengthy conversational story with you. If you can look at this, please, much respect, Stuart. Thank you, Stuart. I'll put that one to one side too. Hey, Rodney, New Zealand Oil will be having an inquiry and holding all the people involved to account, not just the vaccine criminals, uh, Dan and Co, uh, simply evil. You should really read up on New Zealand Oil policy. I will, and I'm going to have Liz on. She's wonderful. Hi, Rodney, listening to your interview this evening, and was surprised to hear that it seemed you haven't heard of Rumble before. If you haven't, please do go and look. One of my favorite channels on there is Dan Bongino. He speaks predominantly on U.S. politics, however, it all has implications for us all. He absolutely does not mince his words. It is well-articulated, well-researched, and absolutely backs up everything with receipts, as he calls it. That is hard, cold evidence. The degree of corruption in U.S. politics is staggering and widespread. Do yourself a favor and go and take a listen. As some background, Dan Bongino is a former New York cop, U.S. Marine. He was part of the Secret Service Detail Protecting Obama, and he's a degree in psychology too. That is, he's been around the block a few times and has his head screwed on straight. Well worth listening to. Thanks, Graham. I have heard a rumble. I've been on rumble, and I have listened to Dan. He's great. So um, I agree with you, and thank you for that. Hi, Rodney, just responding to your over in terms of who you'd vote for. Please, please, take a look at Liz Gunn and her New Zealand Royal Party. She's her head screwed on straight. I've been fighting the good fight for the last few years, has written off as a conspiracy theorist, despite being proven right time and time again. And finally, last but not by no means least, she genuinely cares about this country. Take a look at their website. And Yes, Liz Gunn is promising a full-blown inquiry into this scandemic and the deliberate attack on our economy and way of life. We're going to get Laz on. She's great. Vote New Zealand Laura, the only party offering you what you want. Check out their website for policy and candidates. And from Alan. Hi, Rodney. That was a great show with Ali Cook and Meryl Newman. You're getting a great grip on being a radio host. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. I really loved the track played at the end of your show. I tried to identify it, but couldn't. It was a country song about the devil, which made me smile. What was it? Looking forward to seeing the River of Truth too. Clever title and something else to produce some balance in our lives. Alan. Loved the Mary Hobbs interview with Rodney. Hey guys, keep up the great work. The interview with Mary Hobbs is spot on. Same with the Sam Bailey interview. I also like the interview on in the Grand Solar Minimum. Hi Rodney, this is from Mike. Love your show and I'm constantly amazed at the calibre of your guests. I'm concerned that everyone keeps saying that Mary indigenous when in their own Maori oral history tells everyone that they rode here on canoes from other islands. There were people already here, and if you read Forbidden History, you'll see for yourself that Mary even admit that. There were large civilizations already here, who they learned from. Hmm. These people were persecuted and turned into slaves and then eaten by the warring tribes. Talk to Marama Matamui in Wanganui. She can tell you the whole history of these people and back it up. Please get her on the show. Cheers, Mike from Foxton. Oh, interesting. Loving the Mary Hobbs interview with Rodney. A refreshing voice. Thank you. Your interview and discussion with Dr. Muriel Newman provides a massive watershed moment of where New Zealand's future is headed. If the Labour government is re-elected this October, a new government must provide a complete reversal of this Aden treachery or there'll be a massive loss of wealth and population from New Zealand, in my opinion. Cheers, Christopher. No, I think you're right, Christopher. Hi, Paul. I won't say good morning because what exactly are we morning? Ah, Love the chat Rodney Hyde last week with Mary Hobbs from Mount Cook. She writes great articles for the Daily Telegraph. Keep up the outstanding work also, Jerry. Hi, Rodney. I love your work and your guests have a lot of fabulous things to say. However, could you please stop interrupting your guests? They're on a roll and yet you interrupt and mansplain to us what's been said or interject with your stories. I get confused with who's interviewing who. And please, can you let your guests speak, please? Thank you. Well, I think that's three or four. So I've got the message. I need to sit back a little more. Thank you. Uh, from Bill. With all due respect, perhaps you've chosen the wrong single issue. Why? Not my single issue, remember, is an inquiry into the vaccine injured. Parliament mandated the jab, so why would you suggest a proper inquiry when it will be a whitewash? For sure, the people on that commission will exonerate all concerned. New Zealand oil has humanity, bravery and courage. They're minor, but they have integrity. They were not in Parliament, and you haven't even mentioned. I don't want inquiry. I don't trust Winston or any of them, and they promises me nothing. What's needed is, as Kathy, and Kathy Jameson implied, is a court case that proves wrongdoing, harm, and accountability, separate from Parliament that does not want to be held accountable. Best regards, Bill. Oh, I think you might be right, Bill. But think of this: you've got more trace faith in the judiciary than I do. <laughs> I don't trust the judiciary to find against the government, I'm afraid. And last one from Mitchell. You can't have it both ways voting for a party that is assured of getting in and having an inquiry on the injuries and deaths from the Vax when all the parties that are in Parliament now voted for and supported it to the hilt to mandate the Vax jabs. Do you think they will ever happen with Chris Bishop and Chris Hipkins, who were their party's pro Vax heads? And none of the parties came out and talked to the protesters? My God, Rodney, a government that admits its mistakes? Never. Why not have a conciseness and vote for a party, have a conscience and vote for a party that has virtue instead of sending any party that promoted the death jab and putting them back in Parliament and you wanting change? How does sending any party in Parliament now back to do the same evil deeds that they've already gotten away with to do it again? I'm with you, Mitchell, right? struggle to vote for the existing parties given what they did I really do that was mailbag, how wonderful thank you, and please text me 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio this is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. I love the feedback and I'm getting what, pulled shoulders? because even the criticisms I feel are sent with love for each other, for the show, and for the community. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I'm trying very, very hard to support and to like Mr. Chris Luxon. Why? Because I want rid of this government so badly. And it would mean that Mr. Luxon is going to be Prime Minister. And I like to like and support Prime Ministers just because it's our country and they're our leaders and we have chosen them. But I struggle earnestly with Mr. (laughs) Luxon. And this one, I've mulled this over because he came out and said that those that are thinking that it's an election issue about toilets, talking toilets, and men accessing ladies' toilets is an election issue or on another planet or should be talked about in this election or on another planet. Well, I'm one of those, Mr. Luxon, and I'm not on another planet. I'm on this one. And Mr. Luxon, Your caucus and you voted for this. You support this. And when we come along and say we object, you dismiss us as on another planet. You support the idea that a boy can just choose to be a girl, that a girl can just choose to be a boy, that a man can choose to be a woman, and a woman can choose to be a man. And that a man who chooses to be a woman, you support that they can play women's sports and destroy that sport for women and for my girls. You support a man who declares himself a woman, you support that they can enter girls' changing rooms at the swimming pool. You support that. You think that's okay. And when we say, no, we don't think that's okay, you say we're on another planet. What is wrong with you, Mr. Luxor? What is wrong with you? And you support our girls trying so desperately hard in their sports Only to be beaten by a boy masquerading as a girl, and you say if we want to talk about it this election, we're on another planet. Worse than that, Mister Luxon, you've voted for the legislation, along with your entire caucus and the ACT caucus, that a man can have his can change his birth certificate so that he was born a girl the change is not even recorded he just becomes that he was born a baby girl and therefore is a woman and you voted for that madness you voted for that lie you voted for that cheat you voted for that fraud you voted that a man can unilaterally decide to declare and to have a birth certificate say that he's born a girl and therefore can enter my girl's changing shed, my girl's bathrooms, my girl's chosen sports and you say I'm on another planet. Mate, where are you? My goodness, where are you? And how do I develop a respect for you, Mr. Luxon, when you say you have values and principles? Because you're a Christian, but you don't live in politics with your Christian beliefs or values or principles. You're a million miles from them. How can you be a Christian and not have these principles and values? And so I struggle to trust you because it seems to me that your principles and your values are what? Flexible? Marketing? What you feel you need to say? what voters you think want to hear you say, what the Wellington bubble thinks, what a certain cohort of young women think, and you match your utterances to that. Because I can't believe that your principles and your values and your belief system would suggest it's okay for a grown man to change his birth certificate such that he was born a girl and then enter the girls changing rooms. There's no principles or values in any of that, Mr. Luxon. And yes, you can say that I'm on another planet, but in the future, I'll be able to say that I didn't sit by and watch politicians destroy the concept of womanhood and girlhood destroy women's sports and girl sports muddy the difference between a boy and a girl and a man and a woman such that even birth certificates don't mean anything i won't be able to, i won't have to say that i stood by and said nothing cuz i'm speaking up many others are speaking up And you're the one that's saying we're on another planet. If there's a judgment day, and I truly believe there is, what are you going to say, Mr. Luxon? What are you going to say that you stood for woman when you behave like that? You're on real talk with Rodney Hyde on rallycheck.radio. Send me a text at 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am. Oh, what a great show. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Oh, I loved it. Bryce Wilkinson from the New Zealand Initiative talking to us about Ireland and showing what's possible just need to get a grip, need to look to the big picture, need to think about the future, need to be thinking about what we should be doing. Ireland showed it can be done. Uh, We need to do it. Why? Because we want to provide a bright, positive future for our children and for our grandchildren and for their children and their grandchildren. And economic performance matters. It really matters. And uh, it's very possible All we need to do is be optimistic, be positive, look to the future, stop the whining, stop the fighting. Well done, Bryce. And oh, wasn't Sarah something? Sarah Beasley, she has been busy uh, with the mayor and with the officers of her local council, uh, approaching them, discussing the issues with them and showing that you have enormous power as a citizen if you're prepared to take the time, if you're prepared to analyze the issues, and if you're prepared to get alongside those in, in power. And I could readily tell with Sarah, she has a wonderful approach to her, that if she approached you as a politician, you would listen to her. Because she didn't wouldn't be approaching them to score points or to try and push an agenda. She was a very, she'd be very, very genuine, makes a difference. Go Citizen Power. Go Sarah. <laughs> I loved that. We need more Sarah's in the world. we would have a better country. Uh, thank you for listening. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's Reality Check Radio. Oh, and remember, send us a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at Reality Check Radio. It's lovely having you along.
0: You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde
1: on RCR, Reality Check Radio.